Josh, would you be willing to open us in prayer, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to learn from your word, and we pray that you would give us attentive hearts as we listen to Paul as he uh, teaches through this passage of John, and that we would uh, see you more clearly through it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you. <clears throat> so last week we started John's chap John chapter 7 through 8, and these chapters we're going to be considering somewhat together. Uh, it, it's kind of one long episode uh, at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. And one of the big themes in this is a range of different responses to Jesus from the crowds the, and the, the people in Jerusalem. The, it, it's not just the crowds, it's also the religious leaders that are there as well as other groups. And there's a, a very significant range of responses. Um, one thing that's worth keeping in mind is that Jesus has been in Jerusalem probably 18 months pre previously and had healed a paralytic. And he did that on the Sabbath. And, you know, interestingly, the religious leaders were not particularly interested in the fact that he healed a paralytic, but they were very interested in the fact that he did that on the Sabbath in a way that they considered to be a violation of their understanding of the Sabbath. Uh, and so that issue is going to be coming up uh, through these chapters. From the beginning, we, we really see that everyone is evaluating, or maybe to use the language of the chapter, they're judging uh, Jesus to decide what to think about him. The question of who Jesus is and the question of how to evaluate Jesus' claims is really the main theme of these chapters. And I think another closely related theme to that is we're going to see the limitations of human judgment on full display as we kind of look at what John is recording here. So the approach that we're going to take to chapters 7 and then chapter 8 will be to kind of go over the chapter as a whole and then come back to some of the important ideas. I think the reason that I'm doing that is that often John introduces an idea a couple of different times in, in these chapters, and I think it's a little bit more efficient to kind of look at what the chapter is saying, get the flow of, of thought, and then to kind of come back and look at some of the issues that John brings up often several times. So if it seems like I'm skipping over something, I probably am. Um, and hopefully I'll come back to it next week, or actually in, in two weeks as we're going to see in a little bit. So last week we got to verse 24, and we're going to start it off in verse 25 this week. Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the pe people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So one of the things that probably jumps out in this passage is why are they concerned about knowing where Jesus has come from? And there seems to be an expectation within Ju 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 uh, uh, Judaism at that time that the Christ was, <clears throat> you might be present, but wasn't revealed yet. He was kind of off in secret and would kind of suddenly appear in a fully formed fashion ready to take on the Romans. Um, sort of almost appear out of nowhere. And you know, this isn't 100% certain. We, we see this in later writings within Judaism 
and it's reasonable to expect that you know, this idea existed back at the time of Jesus as well, although I don't think we have completely firm evidence. But then when you look at what's recorded here in John, this expectation is very consistent with, with that. It's kind of hard for me at least to see where you would go to the Old Testament to get this. On the other hand, you, with a, an oppressed people under Rome that were kind of yearning for liberation, it's really easy to see why you know, an idea like this would really kind of catch fire. You know, an eschatology with this feature would sell a lot more paperbacks than other forms of eschatology would in, in that day. Um, and, and so that I, th I think that's what uh, is being, uh, that's what's kind of behind this expectation. Like, you know, we've, we know where Jesus has been you know, in, in Nazareth for the past few decades. This isn't consistent with what we're expecting the Messiah to be. What is interesting, though, is that um, you know, Jesus doesn't correct the crowd's expectation. And, you know, he, you know, here and elsewhere, there's an expectation that, you know, um, the Messiah would be born in Jerusalem, or sorry, in, in Bethlehem, which is close to Jerusalem. And Jesus, in fact, was, but he, he doesn't correct the crowds. Um, and uh, the temple would probably have genealogical records. The ge genealogies were particularly important to Jews in that day. And so it would have been straightforward to, for Jesus to defend that claim, and he doesn't. And I think the reason that he doesn't is that it wouldn't really prove very much. Um, the, as, as we talked about last week and as we're going to see this week, the crowds aren't so much seeing reasons to reject Jesus and rejecting Jesus. The crowds are looking for reasons to reject Jesus. And so if you stamp out one, another one's going to sp uh, sprout right up. It might remove one reason to doubt, but it, uh, Jesus uh, understands the human heart well enough to know that the crowds will only find another reason to reject him. And so that, that's not an important issue. Jesus is trying to steer them to, towards more important things. And I, I think there is something for us to learn from this. You know, if, when we're talking to unbelievers about Jesus, you know, proving that Jesus is the Christ through logic is insufficient. It certainly may have some role. The Christian faith is a logical faith and it's a defensible faith, but that's not how people come to, to know Christ. <clears throat> Ultimately, an unbeliever must be faced with the question of who Jesus is, and they need to come to see him as the Bible presents him as being the true bread of life, as being the living water and the light of the world. If you explain away one objection, it's only going to lead to another objection and another, and um, it's going to distract from the, the central issue. So uh, we see in this chapter that for most, these objections are an excuse to avoid believing. They're not sincere doubts, and that's often going to be the case uh, today as well. Uh, again, I, I don't want to say that we shouldn't answer objections and we shouldn't uh, you know, spend some time looking into them. Um, there are really good answers to any objection in Christianity. And if you have a hard time finding it, I'm sure that Tim or the elders could point you uh, to really good uh, sources and good uh, ways of looking at things. But one thing that helps me is to always think back to the religious leaders after Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus rose from the dead, and they interviewed the guards who you know, were overcome when uh, the angels ro rolled away the stone. Uh, they knew, probably with more certainty than nearly anyone else in history, what had happened to Jesus. And what was the response? They bribed the guards to conceal it. <laughs> um, 
no matter how strong an evidence uh, an unregenerate human heart is confronted with about who Jesus is, they're not going to accept it. Um, and you're not going to be able to produce as compelling a case as the religious leaders had. They, re they rejected it not because they didn't know it was true, they rejected it because they didn't want it to be true. So I, I, I would certainly say answer objections, but, but always be pointing uh, to the person of Christ. The next section that we come to in uh, verse 32, I'll go ahead and read that. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Uh, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, dis the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, uh, <clears throat> You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Um, just to try to unpack s some of the meaning here, you'll remember, of course, that about four to five hundred years previously, the Babylonians uh, came in in three different invasions and eventually completely destroyed Jerusalem, burned it to the ground, and hauled nearly everyone off into captivity. The, the small fraction that were left were insignificant and mostly kind of got absorbed into other populations. Um, the Bible records a remnant that came back to Judea 80, 70 years later, uh, as was prophesied, and you rebuilt that, you know, this would be the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they kind of rebuilt the walls in Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and so forth. And that's the portion that's mostly talked about in Scripture. But what we often forget is that that's a remnant. Most of the Jews that were deported stayed in uh, for foreign countries. They had built businesses there. They'd acquired land. They'd been successful. And that they, they were in some of the more rich, affluent parts of the world. And so going back to kind of this backwater um, you know, region at the, at, at the time of, of uh, Jerusalem and, and Israel was not very appealing to most. Most you know, would've, wouldn't have made a lot of financial sense to go back. They were told to, and so many were disobedient to the commands of Scripture there, but they did retain their Jewish identity. And they... Uh, at, at this point in history, 400 years later, they had moved throughout the Roman Empire. And we see that in the New Testament. This is an important idea in the New Testament, in fact. Whenever Paul would go to a new Gentile city you know, in you know, Asia Minor and in Greece, the first place that he would go was the synagogue. And there was a synagogue there because the Jews had been dispersed throughout the world. They would occasionally come back for some of the feasts, but uh, for the most part, they were kind of comfortable living in other civilizations. And so that's uh, what, what's meant here by the dispersion. Um, was there a question? Okay. John often writes at several different levels of, of meaning. Um, and so I, I would like to just kind of look at the two different levels that you could look, look at this at. At the surface level, Jesus, I think, is, is saying that after his death, he's going to return to God where they won't be able to find him. But there's a, a deeper level to that, if, if you can be deeper than that, I, I think, and that is that you, Jesus' offer of coming to him is freely available now. 
Jesus can be found now, and that's tr that was true for them. It's true for us, but it's not true indefinitely. There will be a time when it becomes too late to come to Jesus, and that might be through Jesus' return. That might be through our death, or it might be through a heart that is sufficiently hardened that it is simply no longer open to the, the claims of Christ. And we're going to come back to that idea uh, later, I think, in chapter 8. Um, there's a lot more that we could unpack from these verses, but if you read chapter 8, you'll see a very similar section to this where Jesus essentially says the same thing, but he, he deepens it. And so we're going to return to some of these ideas and develop them more when we come to this again in chapter 8. The uh, section I'm probably going to do the least justice to are, are these next verses, uh, and we will come back to this idea, but it's going to be later. Um, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever uh, believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And again, rather than completely unpack this, we're going to come to this at uh, the end of this section and come back to it, uh, but I'd, I'd like to try to get through the chapter first. Um, a few things to look at, though. One of the interesting things that drives commentators crazy is what is Jesus quoting out of the Old Testament, because there really isn't a particular passage in the Old Testament that is very close to what Jesus says. Um, you could get a lot closer if Jesus hadn't made rivers plural. <laughs> um, on the other hand, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that are really close to this idea. Uh, and I think that Jesus knows his Old Testament perfectly well that he could have quoted any number of passages that would say essentially what he's saying here. It wouldn't have been a problem to find a quote that would make this point just as well as what amounts to a paraphrase. I think Jesus has intentionally chosen not to quote a specific passage but to sum up a number of passages in, in the Old Testament to say, this isn't just one little part of the Old Testament that I'm talking about. This is a huge idea in the Old Testament. I'm fulfilling all of these prophecies, not just one particular one uh, here. Um, anyway, I think really quickly, I, I, I don't want to get too far into this, but it's hard to resist saying a little bit. You know, Jesus has living water um, and uh, that he had back in chapter 4, and that idea is coming up here again. He's talked about bread of life. Um, the, we, we see both in water and bread something that's necessary to sustain life. If you don't eat, if you don't drink, you die. Um, but neither of those things in this world does its job very well. You, know, you can eat your fill of bread, you're going to be hungry the next day. You can drink cool, refreshing water, you're going to be thirsty again in a matter of hours. Um, True bed satisfies indefinitely. Living water fully and eternally quenches thirst. Um, so I think that's one thing to, to bear in mind in understanding this. <clears throat> um, one of the things that, that comes up that is new here is that not just you know, is there living water, but there's a huge abundance of it. And the majority of commentators seem to say that this isn't necessarily referring to your grace kind of outpouring from the heart. That seems like a reasonable way to, to read this, and it certainly is true, but I think um, if, if we trust commentators at least, 
what Jesus is really getting at is that there's this superabundance of water that, that's coming, that, that Jesus is providing to the individual, and that's what is the main thing that's being pointed out here. If, if you uh, choose to interpret this the other way, you're certainly not getting wrong doctrine. Um, so it, it's not like you have to choose necessarily between the two. Um, And as much as I would like to, to go into this more, we, we will next time, but I'd like more, more time to develop it. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to keep going, uh, finish the chapter, and then we'll come back to some things. So, uh, verse 40. When they had heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the, the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Um, there's a, a lot in here, so I, I'd like to start with irony. Irony is something that John has, I think, a particular fondness for. He loves when he encounters it, and he, he likes to point it out. And this section in particular is really rich with, with irony. Um, some of the examples that I found, I'll, I'll go through. There's probably quite a bit more. But you know, there's an argument about whether Jesus is the prophet. Um, and remember, there's a specific prophecy you know, towards the end of Moses' ministry about another prophet that's going to rise up in the manner of Moses. And the Jews recognized that no particular Old Testament prophet came close to meeting what Moses is talking about. So there's a um, kind of an ultimate expression of the, the office of the prophet that was expected to come up. Um, others are arguing that Jesus is the Messiah. And to many, uh, their eschatology actually held that those would be different individuals. So they're arguing about whether Jesus is one or the other, but in fact, as Christians, we know that Jesus is both. Um, some of them were asking whether Jesus could be the Messiah when he wasn't from Bethlehem, but the irony, of course, is that he was. Um, and one thing that's kind of worth pointing out is that I, at least, am of the opinion that John is writing with a knowledge of the other Gospels. And the reason that we see such differences between the Gospel of John and what's the other three that, that are called the Synoptic Gospels is that John didn't want to repeat material that was already well covered. And so John is almost writing a supplement, um, although it would be a disservice to call John just a supplement to the, the Gospels. I think it's uh, you know, equally uh, magnificent on it, it, its own. But, but John doesn't want to overlap with them. And John never actually points out that, uh, you know, that Christ was born in Bethlehem. And I would look to sections like this where John, I think, is expecting us to go to Matthew and to go to Luke and see the record of Christ's birth and, and know that. Um, 
uh, th that's how I would ju justify at least my your belief uh, that that John is sort of expecting us to, to be aware of the other Gospels and is writing with, with that knowledge. Um, another really interesting irony in this is that we've got this crowd that the religious leaders are looking down on, uh, and they're derisively saying this crowd doesn't know the law, uh, doesn't know the basics of Judaism, and they're actually coming a lot closer to recognizing Jesus than the religious leaders who, who uh, supposedly know, know the Scriptures better. And in, you know, in the informational sense, certainly do. Um, the religious leaders pride themselves, in fact, in their superior command of Scripture and the law. And then Nicodemus is the one that has to kind of come and point out that they're actually not following that law when, with the way that they're dealing with Jesus. Um, you know, Nicodemus is pointing out what, what's effectively kind of a legal um, point, that they, they should pr give Jesus a hearing prior uh, to passing the sort of judgment on him that they're, they're passing. And then their response is uh, rather interesting. Um, they re respond to him in a really derisive way. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, Jonah and Nahum came from Galilee, and uh, Elisha and Elijah are uh, probably from, from Galilee as well. So we, we actually do have <laughs> um, prophets that, that came from Galilee, reasonably important ones. And so I think uh, this actually, the way I read this at least is this shows just how you know, you know, angry and unthinking the religious leaders were. They, they didn't even um, think through the scriptures carefully because they should have uh, been aware of these sorts of details and they didn't. Um, with uh, respect to coming from Galilee, though, there is something interesting. Um, there is a very clear prophecy. This would be in, in Micah 2. I'm not going to read it, but most of us are at least broadly familiar with this idea that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And you know, we, we, uh, as, as Christians, we you certainly accept that prophecy. That is the uh, prophecy that you know, Jews would have looked at too with their expectations of where the Messiah was to come from. But there's another prophecy in Isaiah 9, and I'm going to go ahead and read a, a good section here because I, I, I think seeing this in context shows how important a prophecy this is also. This is in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her, for her who, was in anguish, who was in anguish. In the former times, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They have rejoiced before you <clears throat> as with joy at the harvest. They are glad and they divide the spoil uh, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressors you have broken in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time uh, forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so hopefully you can see why I, I took the time to read a larger section. Um, the, the end of this is one of the you know, greatest of the messianic prophecies in Isaiah, which makes it one of the greatest messianic prophecies. Um, and it begins with you know, the Messiah kind of arising out of Galilee. And to me at least, maybe this is because I'm a Christian and I'm looking back in, in hindsight, you know, this is you know, as clear a, a messianic prophecy as the you know, messianic prophecies of the Messiah being born in Jerusalem, and, or sorry, being born in Bethlehem and, and coming from that. And so I think a fair-minded person with a good knowledge of the scripture would recognize that and would at least say, wait a minute, you know, we, we've got a prophecy about Bethlehem that I don't see how Jesus fulfills that, but we also have this prophecy about, Jesus, about the Messiah coming from the region of Galilee, and you know, that you know, uh, Jesus does seem to be fulfilling here, and at least go to Jesus and find out what's going on. Um, I, I think someone that were open to accepting Jesus' claims would have done that, and we see that, that exactly the opposite is the case. They, they question Jesus' claims, but they don't go to Jesus for explanation. Um, another thing that I think is worth looking at in this section, a, a question that I spent a little bit of time thinking about, is that we, we see the ruling elites are overwhelmingly rejecting Jesus. But if you look at the crowd that they look down on, um, kind of average people who have much less understanding of Scripture, much less education, much less training in logic and, and reason, um, often are, are accepting him. You know, is this... We'll, we'll come back to this in a little bit um, in, in more depth, but you know, is this just a problem today or is this, uh, or is this just a problem in the, in the first century or is this a problem today? And obviously we're you know, equally aware of that today. I could point to lots of examples. I think um, one of them that has been very important for Christianity in the few hundred years is this contempt that you know, educated society has for the supernatural. Um, and that's especially true in academic circles. Um, and you know, if you look at a lot of you know, theology departments, even in, in some Christian universities or, or formerly Christian universities, you know, this idea has really taken hold. It's an idea that can't be proven. You can't prove that the supernatural doesn't exist, but it's, it's this idea that's so popular among the elites that you know, to, to question it, you'd get a very similar response to the uh, to what Nicodemus got from, you know, you, not even much of a, uh, from relatively weak support of Jesus. You, Nicodemus wasn't, um, you know, coming out and saying that Jesus is who he said he is. He's simply saying, you know, we're not even following our process here. <laughs> it, the, his support was rather weak and tepid, and even that got a, a, a very derisive response. Okay. The we're going to come back to some of this stuff in more detail, but one of the things I, I would like to get to is uh, verses 753 through 811. So if you're following along in your Bible, uh, the ESV has two sets of brackets there and uh, a footnote on the bottom saying something to the effect that you know, the earliest, the most reliable manuscripts don't have this section. And so I've looked into this particular section and why it is that those brackets are there. And Nearly every uh, modern commentator and nearly every modern pastor I listened to does not believe that John wrote these as part of his gospel. Uh, there are a couple exceptions to that. 
um, that, that do argue it's authentic, but it's a, a pretty small minority. And I'm going to use uh, a list that John Piper prepared in his sermon on this because I think he did the, the best job of kind of succinctly summarizing why it is that most do not believe this is actually part of John's original composition. The, the first one is that we do have quite a few Greek manuscripts from relatively early on. And this particular account is not present in any of the ones prior to the 5th century AD. So the best manuscripts we've got, it, in terms of age at least, never have this. Um, the earliest church fathers wrote commentaries on John, and we, we have those. We, we don't have the, the manuscripts that they wrote from, unfortunately, but when they go through this episode, they skip the section. They simply go from the end of chapter 7 through and they you know, keep going at 8.12 as if it wasn't there in their manuscripts, and I, I, th I believe it probably wasn't. Um, the text flows very well if you simply remove this section. Uh, it, uh, actually, I think, in my opinion, at least it flows better, um, which suggests that this is probably a, a later edition. Um, one of the things, if you you know, understand a little bit about how the church developed is that, you know, um, it took a long time to get places on foot. And so, you the world was a lot bigger back then. And so you have an Eastern church and a Western church that didn't communicate as much as they would today. And in the Eastern church, this passage is non-existent until the 10th century. Um, so the manuscripts that they had to work with did not have this passage at all, and it wasn't until the 10th century that it starts to show up in the Eastern Church. Um, this is, to me, maybe even the most decisive. When this story does start to appear in manuscripts, it appears at three different places in the Gospel of John. Um, it, it, uh, uh, besides here, it appears at 736, 744, 2125, and then sometimes we even find it in the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> um, so it's a story that someone really wanted to preserve, and they apparently wanted to preserve it by you know, in, inserting it into the Gospel. Um, but, you know, I think the, the fact that it, you know, it doesn't even have a stable spot that it comes in uh, is, is kind of telling. And the, the last reason, which, you know, I, I'm not qualified to evaluate, but uh, those that, that are, say that the style and the vocabulary is the most distinct from the rest of the gospel compared to anything else in John. It doesn't sound like John wrote it. Um, so why is it here? <laughs> where, where did it come from? Um, and it, we, we can't answer that, unfortunately. But I, I think the most reasonable explanation, if, if you think about you know, the early church, it was about 20 years before the Gospel of Mark, which was probably the first gospel to be written, was actually penned. And even then, you, uh, paper was expensive. The time to write out a manuscript was expensive. And so, you know, even once the Gospel of Mark existed, a lot of churches wouldn't have been able to get a hold of a copy for a while. Um, instead, they had people that, you know, had talked to the apostles, and sometimes they had you know, eyewitnesses to Jesus himself that had kind of gone out as missionaries that had, had come through that church, at least at some point, and they had heard stories about Jesus. And I would be willing to bet that there's all sorts of things 
well, I don't have to be willing to bet. At the end of John, John records that Jesus did many works that are not written here. <laughs> John's only selectively recording a small fraction. He says that you, the world wouldn't have enough room to, to uh, hold the, man, the, the manuscripts that could have recorded what Jesus did. I, I think that this is probably one of those stories that was well known in the early church, and it may well be an authentic story of, of Jesus um, it, that w was known through the early church. It just didn't make it into the, any of the four Gospels for, well, not for whatever reason, because the Holy Spirit did not inspire the original four Gospel writers uh, to write it down. Um, and it, it was remembered and someone wanted to see it preserved and um, the intent may, may have been good but slipping it into a gospel is probably not the right thing to do. So that's at least my take on what probably happened and how this probably ended up here. Um, the majority say that, will say that this is probably an authentic story of Jesus. Um, although I, I think it's uh, a little bit much to say that we can say that with any uh, degree of um, certainty. What was very interesting to me, you know, looking through commentaries and especially sermon series, is that there's this huge range of how to deal with it. Um, a, a few pastors just sort of preached on it without mentioning this issue that was a small minority. Some mentioned the issue and then would say that this is, uh, you know, probably an authentic story, and then they kind of in, include it in the, in, the, in the gospel. Probably the smallest uh, number decided to skip it. That's my choice uh, here. In my mind, John did not write this. It's an interruption to John's flow of thought, and so it's probably best considered elsewhere. And so my personal choice is simply to omit this section. Um, this brings up a, a really interesting to me issue, and that is you know, the reliability of the scriptures. Um, I'm going to say just a little bit on this. There are two extended sections in the New Testament, this being one of them, that uh, are questionable. The other is at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Um, they're both in, in the 10 to 15 verse range, or maybe 20, I don't remember exactly. There's a a larger number of you know, individual verses or even phrases within verses that are, are questioned. And there's a science, or science might not be the right word, but there's an academic you know, study that's referred to as textual criticism. We have an embarrassingly large number of uh, old New Testament manuscripts, and they've come down to us uh, you know, from different regions, and they don't agree perfectly. Um, but it's possible to look at those manuscripts and to, to think reasonably and to come up with a fairly good idea of what the original manus manuscripts were, even though none of the manuscripts are necessarily perfect. And that's something that as conservatives we're always a little bit nervous about. Um, because at the liberal end of things there's uh, a real tendency to try to discredit the validity of the Bible. At the uh, extreme conservative end of things, you know, the King James translation is the perfect inspired word of God. Um, and I think most in this room are probably some place in between those two, where we, we would like to understand a little bit more about uh, you know, uh, where the, the newer uh, texts of, of Greek come from, the thought that has gone into that, and 
I've talked to Pastor Tim, and he's been uh, very gracious to teach a Sunday school next week on textual criticism, and he's going to look at this issue, maybe a few other things as well, but more broadly, not, not just with this uh, passage in mind. And so this, this is actually something I'm very excited about. I've done a, a bit of digging, and it, it's an interesting subject, and I think it'll be a, an enlightening one, and we'll, we're going to come away from this with a good confidence in the reliability of the, the New Testament, but a realistic one, not one that um, you know, expects that the you know, King James translation is the perfect inspired Word of God. Um, so that brings me to the end of chapter 7, and um, I hope, hope to uh, be able to come back to a couple things. I'm not sure that I'm going to have time to come back to everything that I had, uh, hoped to, so let me see if I can get through um, one of these at, at least. What I've done is I've gone through chapter 7 and looked at the different reasons that are given for rejecting Jesus. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of have these up, but I've, I've kind of thought through all of this, and I'd like to say a little bit more about this, but I've, I've saved it to, until we've gotten through the chapter so we can look at all of the reasons, not just look at these, these same ideas multiple times. In a lot of these responses, we see overconfidence in certain judgments, or we see overconfidence in some types of knowledge. The religious leaders are confident in their interpretation that it's wrong to heal on the Sabbath. Uh, despite Jesus making, I think, a very strong and logical case that should have uh, convinced a reasonable-minded person that their understanding of the Sabbath itself was, was wrong. But they wouldn't back away from that. Uh, they, they were unwilling to change their minds because their, um, their conclusion that Jesus was wrong to heal on the Sabbath is something that they wanted to believe. Others are overtly confident in their interpretation of a prophecy about the Messiah. We saw that this prophecy that the Messiah would sort of appear suddenly and fully prepared out of nowhere was a, uh, a popular you know, interpretation in that time, and there doesn't seem to be a solid scriptural basis for it, but they were confident in that nonetheless, confident enough to reject Jesus. Um, there, <clears throat> let's see. Um, there was probably a, you know, a case where this view had, this is probably a, a case where a view had kind of become generally accepted within a community to the point that you know, people in that community might not even be able to you know, strongly support where it came from, but their confidence in what that community believed was so strong that they kind of held to it. I, I come from a tradition that is uh, you know, credo-baptistic, for example, and I had no idea what the Presbyterian case was. Uh, I, I, I had started to learn a little bit of it before I started coming to, to Spring Meadows, but you know, I, I can say that almost everyone in the community that I came from you know, wouldn't be able to strongly support the Baptist case and had no idea what the reasons that you know, the, the Pado baptists believe what they do were. Um, it was it's just sort of an idea that's accepted. Um, the only argument I ever heard uh, against paedo-baptism, you know, until I was about 40, 35 maybe, was that, you know, the Reformers looked at a lot of things, but they didn't bother to look at the issue of baptism and just kept the Roman Catholic tradition, which all of us know is uh, quite far from the truth. The, the Reformers, that you can look, read them, they, they did examine the issue carefully. Um, so, um, you know, that, that sort of thing can certainly come up today. 
We see others that are rejecting Jesus because they thought he didn't fit more well-founded expectations. So, for example, they looked at the prophecies about, Jew, about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem, and they looked at the prophecies about Jesus, or the Messiah coming from the line of David. And they were reading those correctly, but they didn't, um, they, they dismissed Jesus without investigating those questions. And more importantly, they dismissed Jesus without going to him with those questions. And then we have the religious leaders. They collectively reject Jesus and you know, offer the reason that um, uh, that none of the, and they offer as a reason for that that none of them accepted Jesus. Um, but the crowd that they looked at down on does. Their confidence in their group's ability to judge correctly was very poorly placed. Um, another thing that we see is that it's surprisingly hard to disagree with a group of peers that are united in a strong opinion. And Nicodemus provides a, a really good example of that. His uh, stand that he takes for Jesus at the end of this chapter is quite weak. He doesn't directly defend Jesus at all. All he does is he points out that they're not following their own laws in their rush to condemn Jesus. So he's got a perfectly valid point, but even that gets you know, pushed aside by kind of groupthink here. Um, it's also a little bit interesting just to ask about Nicodemus because we three, see him three different times in John's gospel. We see you know, Nicodemus, of course, coming to Jesus in darkness and the main darkness that John wants us to see there is spiritual darkness. Nicodemus thinks, you know, he's in good shape spiritually and thinks, you know, he might have something to offer Jesus when in fact he needs Jesus to uh, just be begin to have any relationship at all with God. Um, and Jesus has a back and forth exchange with Nicodemus and challenges Nicodemus and Nicodemus' response to that is not recorded. Uh, it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, I, th I think he probably just goes away to think. <laughs> um, doesn't reject Jesus outright, but he's not ready yet to accept Jesus' claims. I think that's the best way to read that, at least in my opinion. You know, here, the most reasonable way to read this, I think, is that we, we see in Nicodemus someone that is still thinking about Jesus and maybe uh, not ready to reject Jesus, but not fully embracing Jesus yet. Uh, I would like to see a, a stronger stand for Jesus from Nicodemus if, if he were a believer at this point. Um, but it's kind of hard to say. It, it may well be that you know, Nicodemus was an intelligent man and he realized that you know, um, you know, a legal point might be a way that he could kind of further his cause without completely... Um, and, and actually maybe do a little bit of good. Maybe, maybe he was just being shrewd here, uh, but he, he did accept Jesus at this point. It's a little hard to say. But you know, finally we see Jesus, or Nicodemus at the end of John's gospel you know, taking care of Jesus' body, which was a rather dangerous thing to do. Uh, so he's, he's risking his life to, um, to support Jesus. The, I think what I'd like to close on, is it okay if I go over by just a couple minutes? Um, is looking back at why the crowds reject Jesus. There was a really good sermon by a pastor named Mark Jenkins that I'm kind of adapting this from. Um, but the main reason, these, these reasons all kind of come together, is that Jesus exposes th their wickedness. One of the things that Mark Jen Jen Jenkins pointed out in his sermon is that almost every language has an expression that goes something like, nobody's perfect. We, you know, uh, all of us have used that as an excuse before in, in all likelihood. 
Um, and you know, the idea behind that is, yeah, I, I messed up, but everybody else messes up, nobody's perfect. And if we, you step back and look at that uh, statement, it isn't really so much of an excuse as it's an indictment on humanity. Um, and Jesus exposes that because Jesus actually was perfect. Um, and that is a, a threat. <laughs> it's something that we have a very difficult time uh, dealing with because it breaks down that, this excuse that we all love to use in one form or another that nobody's perfect, but Jesus was. Um, and I think we, we have on pretty good authority that this, this is one of the reasons. If we start, start at the beginning of the chapter, uh, in verse 7, Jesus is talking to his brothers that are unbelieving at the time, and it says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it work, that its works are evil. Um, and I, I think part of the reason that John brings that up is that that's really going to be a theme in chapters 7 and 8. Um, in moving on then, so in, in testifying about the world that it is wicked, Christ goes against our standards of acceptable uh, morality, which uh, seems a little bit ironic, but let's kind of step back and think about that. Um, go back a little bit in time when God gives a perfect law to his people from Sinai. The response of the sinful human heart over time to that perfect law is subconsciously they, they realize they can't measure up to it. And the intent of the law is to show us our need for Jesus, that we can't measure up to God's standards. We need uh, a perfect Savior that can. We need forgiveness and grace from God. We, we need to, go to, to, be, to be driven by the law uh, uh, to God's mercy. Um, but the proud human heart doesn't do that. Instead, the proud human heart looks at the law and will develop a religious system that might be hard, but is doable. It's something that they can actually do. Think about the rich young ruler. When he came to Jesus and say, asked, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, you keep the law, basically. And the, the response of the rich young ruler was, all this I've done since I was a youth. And I think a lot of the more religious in Jesus' day would have said that in you know, some level of sincerity. And that's because they had reduced the law to a system that was hard but achievable. Um, and um, Jesus, in fact, you know, shows that you know, the law is something that we can't possibly hope to achieve. But when um, we, we, we see what the, the response of uh, you know, kind of a religious system that has, um, that has, you know, developed rules and thinks they're actually doing a good job of keeping them uh, to what actual perfection is when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and he heals a man completely on the Sabbath. You know, instead of rejoicing at that man's healing, all the religious leaders could see was the threat that Jesus posed to them. Subconsciously, they were looking for ways to condemn Jesus, and so they used that system of rules that they had kind of put over the law to make, it, the, make the law achievable it, uh, into something to, that they used to condemn, con, condemn Jesus. And so um, we get the facts about Jesus wrong because we don't want to know those fa uh, what those facts point to. And so I think that's probably a, a good place to close. Um, we'll come back to some more ideas out of chapter 7 and hopefully get a little bit into chapter 8 next time. Dear Heavenly Father, we have seen 
that you have sent a perfect Savior for us, and that is revealed in this word. I pray, Lord, that you would not let us build up things that allow us to put any confidence in ourselves, but that we would look to Jesus as a perfect Savior and us as those that completely need him and have nothing to offer to you. Um, Pray that you would help us not to come up with reasons to reject anything about what you have uh, revealed to us, but that we would uh, think rightly and we would uh, evaluate you with right judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.